This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I am extremely excited to be joined by the climate journalist Eric Holthaus. He's a writer at The Correspondent, and his writing has also appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Slate, and Grist. And now he's written his first book. It's called The Future Earth, a radical vision for what's possible in the age of warming. It's coming out from HarperCollins on June 30th. Eric Holthouse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really a great honor. Now, I know you are a lifelong Midwesterner and so genetically humble, so I'm going to do my best to, uh, to limit how much I ask you to talk about yourself. Um, but I do want to begin biographically. And specifically, I'd like to go back to August of 2018, because that's when you published a cover story at Grist. Uh, it was titled, Courage and Bolt Cutters, Meet the Next Generation of Climate Activists. And that same day, you tweeted that writing that story quite literally changed your life. And so I wondered if you could share with our listeners a bit about your background and how reporting on contemporary climate activism has transformed your thinking and presumably has led you to write this book. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really um, brilliant starting point. Uh, So I think the world was um, just in the early days of what... (laughs) we would probably call the new new abnormal now. Um, it feels like right around then, um, you know, um, I think AOC, AOC had just won her primary. Um, Greta Thunberg was in her early days of her strike. Um, the IPCC special report on uh, 1.5 degrees was coming out in October, so it was just before that. Um, me as a journalist uh, focusing on climate um up until that point i had been writing full time on climate for about um uh 8 years or so um and i feel like i was just lost honestly like <laughs> um in hindsight it feels like i was lost um it feels like i was looking for a, something to tie it together because I had this disconnect that really brought me to journalism in the first place. It was sort of this burning um, uh, mismatch between what climate scientists were saying and what was happening in the world. Um, uh, it, very, very clear uh, since the 80s, at least, um, and probably since the 70s, that there was only 
sort of a radical deviation from business as normal would would uh, effectively um, address uh, environmental concerns. Um, you know, going back to the first Earth Day in 1970, which is still uh, one of the largest mass movements of people in the world globally, um, which is shocking sort of still to see um, that holding up as a major turning point in world history. Um, but now, 50 years later, we're still sort of caught in um, this weird mismatch between what we know needs to happen, which is sort of a rejection of industrial uh, um, extractive um, capitalism, which has its roots, you know, 500 years ago in colonialism and racism and um, all the other um, reasons that wealth has been um, accumulated and concentrated into the hands of very few super powerful people now um, that has put us on a, this sort of global trajectory where it can't like the idea of economic growth for growth's sake cannot be questioned. Um, I feel like all that changed sort of in the, the last few months of 2018 um, or maybe started to change in a new way. <laughs> Um, I think that for me, that was a moment where it started to become a little bit clear. Um, I was asking myself, you know, and climate journalists for decades were asking themselves, what is it going to take for this mismatch to be resolved between where what we know needs to happen and what is happening? And I think, you know, what I say in the book and what I um, what I think thought really clearly for probably the first time that fall was um, we need a vision or visions of the near future. What is it going to feel like um, and look like to be deviating from the world? Like what are we actually fighting for? Not just what we're fighting against. Um, and I think that is starting to come uh into popular knowledge um with the with the idea of a green new deal as being um recentering the climate movement as a movement for justice not just a movement for decreasing carbon emissions or you know abolishing the the fossil fuel industry or um you know saving endangered species or all of those things are are necessary but that's not that can't be the end goal in and of itself because you you don't build a movement by fighting against something you you build a movement by fighting for something and i think that we're starting to see finally in the last 18 months or so uh the emergence of climate change as at its core a justice movement um we are fighting for a world where everyone matters um, we are fighting for a world where every living thing matters and that we realize that we have uh, a chance to remake the playing field um, globally um, in every um, part of the world uh, to recognize that we all exist in an ecosystem together. All of our actions depend on the actions of each other. We are now 
for the first time in human history, literally connecting our actions physically to each other through carbon emissions. What are, our choices on a daily basis physically affect people all around the world every day. Um, and there's accumulation of those choices in the weather that we experience. No matter what the weather is outside today, wherever you are listening to this from, it is different because people have chosen to do uh, certain actions that result in emission, uh, in carbon emissions over the past few hundred years. No weather anywhere in the world at any moment is what it would have been without that. So we have uh, this sort of visceral re reminder that we are all connected now, which I don't think has really existed before, ever. Um, and I think, you know, that in the combination with uh, coming with a name and and a vision for what the future could look like, what it would look like if people matter. <laughs> um, now that we have that, I feel like everything's on the table. Again, we can imagine what that transformative change needs uh, to be now. Um, and um, that was the main, yeah, main driving force behind this book. And as you say, the, the book is primarily dedicated to describing a future. And sort of each it's structured so that each section, you're painting a mural of a decade from here to mid-century. Um, but you begin the book with this whirlwind survey of the toll climate change is taking around the world right now. You write that in a matter of months, it seems that climate change has moved from something that was supposed to happen in the future to something that is causing immediate and irreversible damage across the planet. I wonder if you could just share a couple of those effects, a couple examples of this damage that perhaps not enough of us, even even good liberals who you know believe in and care about climate change, are aware of. Sure, um, I. Um, uh, so the 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 personal story that I share in in this book is that, um, and this book started uh, about five years ago, actually, and this is the third iteration of this project. So. I rewrote the book twice to come up to come with this. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, partly because um, I started the book right when, uh, right when we were having our first kid and that is not a great time to start a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that um, original iteration backfired a little bit. Um, I just couldn't get it done in time. And we had to scrap the project um, and then reboot with um, with uh, an, another team um, about a year later. But um, but um, yeah, this has been a very very personal project for me. Um, in that it ha happened amid um, you know my two babies and then a divorce and then moving across the country and then. Um, you know, the election of Donald Trump and then the emergence of the Green New Deal and sort of like sorting all of this out in my head. Um, and I think that it's it's absolutely not necessary for you to have have your own kids uh, to understand all of this. Um, but it does um, make your time during the day a little bit more compressed and focused. <laughs> so I was <laughs> writing this book actually um, uh, 
in the evenings after my kids were in bed or on the weekends um, when I could have um, uh, the kids with a babysitter or with their mom or, I, you know, I feel like I was stealing time to write the book. And I felt like that that urgency sort of helped focus the words in the book a little bit to say, think of climate change not as a, a distant abstract problem, but an urgent um, an urgent reality that sort of um, permeates every aspect of our life, whether or not we want to admit that right now. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so I, one of the scenes that I have in the first few pages of the book is me and my oldest son, Roscoe, out with my dad at my family's farm in Kansas, walking along this creek. And we see this like beaver poke up through a hole in the ice. And my dad just told this story. He was like, yeah, this used to happen all the time and it doesn't anymore. And I know those are these cliche <laughs> intergenerational <laughs> climate stories that probably everyone has, but it just sort of like focused it for me um, a little bit to see um, that um, this same thing is playing out in basically every family everywhere in the world right now. Um, that um, it's not a normal thing for, you know, our planet to be going through a few hundred thousand years worth of change in a, in a span of a single human lifetime. Like, it's just not, it's not something that humans are built to know how to deal with. Um, we are, you know, right now have, uh, the most carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at any point since modern humans evolved like four or 5 million years ago. So we just don't know biologically what this world is that we're in right now. There's no real frame of reference for our human brains to understand it. Um, and so, and that's what I, I think, um, I try to talk about in that first um, in that first section of the book is that these are um, climate. We think of climate disasters as you know, typically if it's covered in the news as um, statistics or how much damage was created or how many people were killed. But this is sort of an ongoing trauma um, that everyone is feeling, especially people who have been um, marginalized by society. Um, this is something that permeates life. Um, and I think the, the, be the, the best way to think about climate change is as an active sort of ongoing trauma that everyone is dealing with rather than as a scientific problem. This is just another, um, this is another, uh, thing that we will have to, um, wrap our brains around what it is, what it is like to be human, uh, requires us to understand what, it, what it's like to be alive in a, in a moment of geological history where the world around us is changing faster than we are able to perceive. Um, so I try to humanize, um, some of these <laughs> events a little bit, um, and talk about how the people, um, who are dealing with them are dealing with them, what it feels like, um, what that, um, uh, 
that lingering anxiety feels like. For me personally, I I started counseling um, specifically because of climate anxiety during the process of writing this book. Um, I think uh, a lot of people listening probably have, you know, maybe felt a, <laughs> a, a need to do something similar or or to sort of feel yourself all of the sudden at a breaking point and not really know how to name it. I think that's normal for what everyone is going through right now. I don't think it's uh, rare, um, even though it feels rare, maybe, um, because it's not something that we're encouraged to talk about. Um, and I guess my invitation to readers in this first um, third, one third of the book is to think of it that way. Think of climate change as, um, as a trauma um, and think of it as something um, that will take your entire lifetime to, pro- to process. And it's okay if you're on whatever, whatever part of that process you're in at any given time is okay, because um, it's not something that can be quote unquote solved ever. It's going to be our reality for the rest of our life. Even if we do everything we need to do, it's still going to be here. Uh, We'll still have to know that this problem was created and exists. Um, um, Yeah. And I think that's a little bit different than the typical climate book. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So... (laughs) And then as the book begins the perspective tour of the next three decades, you write that the period from 2020 to 2030 will be both a truly terrifying and a golden era in humanity. And the spark for this new era um, is a really bad 2020, which um, kudos to you for forecasting that already. Um, In your version of, of this dark 2020, you speculate about a year of overlapping storms and fires and floods and droughts and all of the cascading damage of these disasters. You know, for instance, you have a a hurricane that hits South Florida, the, the big one, and that then in turn causes the collapse of multinational insurance companies, which then in turn sinks, the, you know, throws the financial uh, global financial system into crisis. Um, and then you also, in, in quite a flourish, you have a freak hurricane hitting D.C. just as Americans are headed to the polls this November. Um, it's all, you know, it's all very awful to imagine, even though we've been kind of desensitized to awful things so far this year. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem as far-fetched, right? These are things that we are used to happening just if they were all happen in one year. Um, that would be quite a shock. Um, I wonder why you decided to begin the book, you know, in your, your vision of the future in this way. And, you know, do you expect it'll take a synchronous arrival of plagues to precipitate political action? Um, you know, it's really weird that I did that because, <laughs> because um, honestly, um, what's happening in the real 2020 is pretty much exactly as I wrote this, like, extreme weird sci-fi <laughs> world i mean i didn't i didn't anticipate it would be like a pandemic mm-hmm. um or a, a resurgent civil rights movement um but we are also we are you know the latest numbers show that we are headed on track for the warmest year in history this year which was a little unexpected i think when the year started we were expecting to be in the top five for sure but but it was unlikely we would be number one. And there is a little bit of a theory here. And I get into this actually in the, in the, um, in the last uh, section of the book, the, the section on the 2040s um, talking about 
how with a very, very quick reduction in emissions, we could actually see an increase in temperature uh, because um, uh, industrial um, aerosols have a net cooling effect on the on the climate. Um, so by reducing air pollution, you actually warm um, the planet. And we are seeing a little bit of that um, this year. Um, I think, you know, the science is still out on the exact um, connection. Um, it's not, um, I haven't seen any papers on it yet. Um, but I know that there are um, climate scientists that are studying this right now, um, that we have seen this surge um, of a tenth of a degree or so, um, which is a lot um, in the span of, of three or four months. Um, and that is causing, over, you know, an overlapping um, uh, uptick in climate disasters. Um, that the potential that the, the the shutdown related to the pandemic um, has worsened the climate disasters um, that otherwise would have happened this year if we end up at, in the on the warmest year in history. So that you know, I I wrote this as as sort of a natural extension of um, of. Uh, the climate strikes and everything that was happened. I finalized the text of the book in January of 2020. Um, so it was sort of the t amount right around the time where it was clear that the coronavirus was going to be a big deal in China. It wasn't yet clear that it was going to become a global pandemic. Um, and I think I, I, in one of my very last edits mentioned the, the coronavirus just very briefly. Yes, it jumps off the page at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, but as I was writing it, uh, this this book version of the year twenty twenty was sort of like a. In I was thinking of it like as there needs to be something um, that really broadens the climate movement in the next year or two in order to get us on path to have. A sort of transformative um, uh, ten-year period. We need to have something that sort of shocks um, us into um, having the climate movement become part of the broader justice movement. Um, that has definitely happened, um, I think, in the real world, in the real twenty twenty, um, and I think that. It's sort of like a, a tr you know, and I kind of regretted having to do it this way after the book was done of saying like, yeah, only only a disaster will wake us out of our senses. Like that seemed sort of like the cliche approach to basically every Hollywood climate movie in, movie in history. Um, but I didn't want to speculate on, on things being too specific. You know, I didn't want to say like, um, you know, Bernie Sanders will be the nominee and we will have, you know, a six month set in general strike because he will start a revolution or so like that seemed way too specific. Although that seemed more likely than a pandemic, you know, in January. Um, 
so uh so yeah in in my like <laughs> in my reluctance to be too specific i ended up just creating a whole bunch <laughs> of climate disasters um and um but i think you know the outcome of of this year could be very similar to what i have in the book in that we could by the end of the real 2020 end up with a world where the the climate movement is broadly aligned to a very resurgent global justice movement on on almost every justice issue that the movements are aligned and working together and there will be it looks like hopefully a window in early 2021 for a very very radical shift not just in US climate policy but global global climate policy it seems like we will have an opportunity to um, kickstart the Green New Deal, hopefully, in a way that is similar to what I have in the book. So I hope that prediction comes true. Um, uh, and one of the one of the fascinating things is that you you have this bad 2020 leading to you know this amped up version of the Green New Deal, but you also imagine that we we might all come to realize we need, as you put it, democracy to work better. And so you also show you also imagine Congress ending up approving an array of sort of long-awaited structural reforms that are not, you know, front and center on the climate agenda from, you know, statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico and the Pacific Island territories to abolishing the filibuster and term limiting the Supreme Court and and, and, and increasing sovereignty for all Native nations. Um, why do you think that the climate catastrophe might be the catalyst for these long-awaited things and, and what good might they do in the warming world? I think that anything that helps democracy to work better is fundamentally a climate policy or a climate um a climate solution i think that um the problem of climate change isn't necessarily a problem of emissions though of course it is it's really a promise a, a problem of um marginalized voices not being heard um they're um the way the U.S. democracy is structured is unfair to people at the front lines of climate change. I think that's pretty uh, balanced and fair assessment that um, that climate policy um, in the U.S. right now doesn't reflect even the median um, voter in the U.S. Um, the that climate climate um, uh, especially in the last 18 months, um, Green New Deal style climate policies pull very, very well. I think it's something that um, people are on board with across party lines. Now, getting it actually in place is the problem. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, so any structural reforms to, to democracy in the U.S. can only be of benefit to the to the climate movement, I think. And, and then you also told, you also look beyond the U.S. and and globally yeah. when you when you envision a, a just transition you 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 have a really crucial role um, being played by the courts and so and why is that and how might that work Yeah yeah I think that um, that we're starting to see the court systems um, globally uh, you know there was a key court case last year in the Netherlands uh, agenda um, that. Uh, sort of defined uh, climate change as a uh, or, or cli uh, um, stable climate as a fundamental human right uh, for the first time 
in at a at a national supreme court level in the netherlands um and that there uh that that decision was structured in a way where it could apply to the entire eu um and if it applies to the entire eu then it could in theory if the eu wants it to could apply to the rest of the world because you could have a, a system set up where um you know, anyone, any sort of EU trade deal has to be carbon neutral or else you can't trade with Europe. Like, I feel like that would pretty much put other countries very quickly in line for major changes. And, and I think that's the thing. That's the theme throughout this book is that change can happen much quicker than we think it can. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> um, Taken, taken at, um, you know, if you read the, if you read the last few pages of the book (laughs) and I've done this to myself in, in the editing process of this book, if you read the last few pages just on its own as an Island, it's like, what the heck, (laughs) you know, (laughs) pretty far out there. But if you take the next 30 years as a series of, you know, six week windows of change, Mm -hmm. and if every one of those windows sort of falls in line the way it needs to, then it can happen um, even potentially more quickly than what I have it here in the book. So, um, you know, and we're in that world now where we can start to see um, in the first six months of 2020, what it might look like to see rapid change happen in real time. Um, So I think, you know, three or four years is actually a very, very long time. You can imagine what has happened in the U S since early 2016. It's almost unrecognizable in some ways, um, where our country is now. So, um, so I think that same thing can and will happen over the next decade. Um, and I think that, you know, the courts will play a big role in that. I think that, um, I think that, uh, protest movements, you know, I talk in the book a lot about the sunrise movement, or in general, justice-aligned movements that are fighting for a Green New Deal as being very, very important. You know, I didn't, when I wrote this book, I didn't expect the school strikes to completely fall off the map overnight, um, which happened because of the pandemic. Uh, But, you know, I think that uh, the Zoomers are super smart and that they will come up with something else that is even more useful than the school strikes were. So, um, all of that stuff can and will happen. Um, and I think that um, really, you know, again, in the first third of the book, I'm trying to just prime the reader to open um, to this sort of necessity of radical change, um, both because the climate science demands it and because um, it's possible, you know, studies of, of, of civil rights movements throughout the last at least hundred years of history show that it's possible. And in fact, almost likely if you get a critical mass that they will succeed in achieving their, their goals. That research comes from Eric Shenoweth, who I also um, cite, who has kind of become sort of this figurehead of, of the, um, of the climate movement. Um, I, I know Sunrise Movement cites, um, cites Eric Shenoweth's work a lot saying that, you need about three, three and a half percent of the general population out in the streets um, to sort of put forward uh, um, 
change that that is that if you study past social movements um over the last hundred years or so nonviolent social movements that have reached that threshold have almost universally achieved their their goals when you get us to the 2030s we get the good news that the world will be past peak emissions uh the u.s will be close to by the middle of the decade it'll be carbon neutral and yet you say it will not be time for high fives unfortunately um rather it's at this point in the book and this point in the narrative that that you imagine we'll come to recognize we must leave capitalism behind why is it why is that and why in that order and you know what comes next yeah, I think that um I think that uh in my mind I have um the 2030s as a moment of triage in world history where we're sort of assessing what what can be salvaged and what can't and we are just throwing things out that that haven't worked for hundreds of years. Um and we are um in the middle of a moment of chaos. Um and I think actually, um, uh, in hindsight, if we do that work without um, doing the work simultaneously of building up uh, a vision for what comes next, it could get very, very bad. And that is the the dystopia scenario that I have chosen to exclude from this book. But um, but um, if we um, if we are, if if we end up in in on January first, twenty thirty, and say, okay, we have um, we have uh, an electrical grid in the U.S. that is one hundred percent carbon neutral, and we are on our way um, to providing the basic needs for not only survival but a thriving um, human existence for everyone on Earth. Um, that we are. Uh, sort of leveling the playing field and participating in in reparations and sort of all of the the demands of the climate movement in the global south. Um, that's the first step. You know, in some ways, that's the easier easiest step to do is to just sort of diagnose what's going wrong and attempt a band aid uh, fix to just stabilize ourselves. Um, replacing that saying what's next replacing the system that we have with a system that is better or that could work for everyone i think will be a messy process uh, that's actually the hardest thing that we have to do over the next 30 years i think um is is come up with sort of a world where we don't have an economic system that is apo- imposed on on uh you know the vast majority of humanity um and that's not extractive that instead is um is um models sort of what i would call an ecological approach to um to uh economic system where we we recognize that um that that all of our um all of our work all of our actions can affect each other and the goal actually is not to make money the goal is to um sort of live a good life for everyone 
and to make sure that uh, non-human species all also have the chance to live a good life. And it's actually possible with um, far fewer emissions <laughs> than what we currently have um, that um, there are a lot of luxury emissions that are that are unnecessary right now um, just because of the way the economic system is structured um, with with capitalism there's a lot of waste inherent in capitalism and and so I think um, you know in 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 that book or in the in the book in the that section the starting in the 2030s um, I have an interview with Kate Rayworth, whose book um, Donut Economics was really important to me. Um, and I try to have her expand on that vision a little bit um, by thinking about um, what it would look like in that world where the, the donut becomes sort of like the governing principle of the world, where we are simultaneously living within um, ecological boundaries and simultaneously putting a hard floor on, on, um, on standard of living everywhere in the world for every person. So we are upholding human rights. We are upholding environmental, um, uh, um, integrity at the same time. And I think that kind of world has, um, entirely different metrics, entirely different aims, um, um, it's focused on cooperation. It's not focused on competition. Um, I think that, um, it, you know, I, I also talk about um, the concept of ownership changes. Like there is, it doesn't really have a meal. Like, we don't really own, <laughs> you, you don't really own things. You are stewards of them in that world. Um, so um, it, it, it's almost like a, <laughs> It's like a it's like a philosophical and spiritual revolution. So you know we've, we've very quickly in this conversation gone from <laughs> uh, the sunrise movement to a global religious revival. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that, and but I think as it's happening, it won't really feel strange. I think it will just feel like oh yeah, this makes sense. We this is what this is what we were actually trying to do the whole time. Um mm. and. Um, you know, and I also talk, um, one of the things that, um, that Kate Rayworth says to me is that this system shouldn't have a name. It shouldn't really have a label. It's not capitalism or socialism or anything. It's just not anything yet because it hasn't been really, we haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it. Anyone had, I mean, I don't know that there are that many people focused on trying to foster the conversations that are necessary to develop sort of like culturally and locally appropriate economic systems that can be sort of networked together in a post-carbon world. Um, I would love to work with those people if, 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 and I'm sure they exist and I'm sure that they just aren't getting enough attention for the work that they're doing. Um, so that's the kind, those are the kind of narrative building um exercises that I think are actually so, so important right now in the year 2020, so that we are ready for 2030 when it comes time to sort of um, be building up rather than just tearing down. 
When it comes to imagining a role for new technologies in the future, you are judicious and, and sparing. You know, there's no, you really resist the temptation of the deus ex machina, you know. But then when you get to the 2040s, um, when the world has already done so much right um, in, in your vision, um, that's when you predict we'll have to resort to geoengineering. <laughs> and I wondered what you think, what, what would force our hand there? Um, how might it help? And what are the many different kinds of risks involved? Yeah, and I was just rereading this part yesterday, actually. Um, um, I think that um, you know, I feel like throughout that twenty forties chapter, I'm very critical of geoengineering and want yes. want to be sure that no one <laughs> can mistake my words here of saying that it's a good idea. Uh, like sort of full stop. Um, I think that it might be a bad idea and we do it anyway. I think that's where I come to in the end Um, because we, um, you know, there's a, there's a 50 year lag built into, um, into climate change where even if the world goes zero emissions, and this is what I alluded to earlier in, in this podcast is that if you radically reduce emissions globally, um, we have about a half a degree Celsius baked in of warming um, uh, from the aerosol effect, from air pollution. And I talk about that a little bit in this section in the 2040s to say that there is a risk that if we do too good or if we do too well at reducing emissions, that we could actually end up with a span of a decade or so where it becomes a lot worse where where climate disasters become a lot worse and in in the book i i say you know there's a partial collapse of the west antarctic ice sheet and in the late 2030s and so you have now rapidly rising sea levels hurricanes that are stronger than ever before um heat waves that are that are stronger than ever before but you have done 20 years of investment into a green new deal and to um rapidly reducing inequality around the world where you have a baseline standard of living in every country that is, you know, sort of on par with everyone having their basic needs met. And then some hopefully um, with a carbon footprint that is just a tiny fraction of what it is today. So we have succeeded in, in large terms at what our goals were, but yet the weather is still getting worse. Now in the book, you have, so many wonderful sources, you know, folks who scholars and activists, you know, whom you converse. And I, I wanted to invite you to generally you know, any, any uh, conversations you had that you're particularly fond of remembering, or really I should just come out and say, I'd love to hear what it would like to host Greta Thunberg and her dad at your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it was strange. Um, I think that, um, um, it was sort of an unexpected thing where I was in touch with her over a sp- over a period of a few months, um, and um, uh, wanted to find a way to connect um, when she was in the U.S. Um, and I just sort of offered a pit stop for for them to to stay the night while they. Um, while they needed, while they were moving through, um, 
and um and she accepted so um it was it it really honestly was just like having anyone else over to <laughs> that was the <laughs> the shocking it shouldn't have been shocking at all really i mean like you know her and her dad are regular people and that's what it, you know when 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 she left that was the main takeaway that i had was this is a regular um person filled with a beautiful spirit of humanity and she is just being an authentic person true to herself and people can sort of transparently see that that's what it is that makes her so powerful is that she is just authentic um uh she's on the autistic spectrum and i am as well and i think maybe that's where we originally connected um and and that's and i could sort of see that little bit um that was familiar to me when when she was here of just sort of saying oh yeah like it just makes sense to what like why wouldn't you just be uncomfortable with the way, the way the world is because it's not working the way it should and you can't really be quiet until you don't tell people that and like things fit together in your head in a way that don't that don't really fit well together with everyone else and you can't really understand why other people don't get it um so that was really um that was a really uh um important um conversation i think and realization to have um at that moment you know while while she's sort of like out on a walk with me my five-year-old and my three-year-old <laughs> the rain in saint paul through our neighborhood um so um i i think i actually think that the most important conversation to me was um was this conversation with Kyle White, um, who is a um, is an um, indigenous scholar and has worked for years with um, with tribes in in North America about um, relating uh, with with states, um, sort of sort of trying to be an advocate for. Um, for for this um this moment of transition um and um he he helped me to to realize that um the narratives that i had been telling myself about climate change were just not seen as sort of transparently helpful in a, in a different perspective, you know, with a different lived history, with a different um, set of historical um, experiences, and and I think um, he said to me that um, I'm not sure if it actually made it into the final version of the book, but he said. Um, this whole concept of urgency or the climate emergency is actually very damaging um, from an indigenous perspective. Like it's not a helpful narrative uh, because, you know, for the last 500 years, anything that has happened quickly to us has been bad. And that's not something that we feel comfortable with. Usually, you know, he's speaking for himself here, I think, but um, 
but but that helped me a lot to think like you know we have to we have to think of of our actions as existing throughout time not just what what feels like the right decision now but we have to be constantly doing work on a on a 200 year time span as well you have to be doing the slow work of relationship building and trust building and um, focus on reestablishing a consent-based uh, relationship um, with your fellow humans. Um, because if we don't, if we don't live and work um, together, then we don't really have a civilization. And and I think that is what um, helped me frame the entire premise of the book. Really, in the sense that we need to be taking the long view in the middle of an emergency because the emergency itself is very uh, violent. Uh, I mean, the act of calling it an emergency, the act of thinking about it as an emergency is violent. And yet still, I use that word all the time. (laughs) You know, I use that word on Twitter and I use that in my writing and I use it throughout this book still. So I have a lot of work to do. I mean, I have, um, I have a lot of, of, of these, um, you know, this dissonance still to resolve in my head and probably always will. But <laughs> there's a lot that I realize that I don't know after finishing writing this book. <laughs> so, um, but I think that um, one, yeah, one very, very important theme um, that that conversation with Kyle White had uh, for me is that we need to be thinking of um, the relationship building work that we're doing um, as a primary climate um, climate policy or as a primary climate way of climate action. So if anything, if I could give a takeaway to anyone listening to this or to reading this book, it would be that the conversations that you have with other people in your life are the most important climate actions you will ever take in your life. Um, it's that person to person relationship telling and showing what matters to you um, is very, very important. Um, you know, it, it equally as important, if not more important is um, is making sure that the voices that you are being informed by are people who are different from you because that's how change happens um yeah the fact is that we are not we are just really not talking about climate change at all um as uh as a world and as a society even though we on on um on uh in polling in surveys international surveys climate ranks right at the top of global priorities but yet we spend only, you know, a few hours a year on the on the nightly news or on cable news talking about climate. Um, uh, and I know that cable news is not really a good proxy of conversation in the U.S., but um, but it doesn't hurt to be talking about climate more as much as you can, as much as you feel like people will listen to you, because it is a good frame for. Um, creating sort of a more just world, which I think is what hopefully everyone (laughs) is trying to do. 
coming into this interview, I, I plan to close by asking you about how the events of, you know, of the year since in the time since you t- last touched the manuscript in, in January have affected your thinking. And what I, especially because you're, you're there in the twin cities. Um, but what you've mentioned so far about that, um, I would surprise me about what you've said about that is that you've been, it sounds like you've been heartened by them, you know, and buoyed and, and maybe increased your optimism about, about the changes that, that we need to make. Um, and I guess I'd wonder, you know, what would you say to somebody who, who sees these things as, you know, obviously who's, who's sympathetically sees, sees obviously fighting a pandemic as being important and, and, and fighting, you know, racist policing and, and, and this, as you called it, a resurgent civil rights movement is important, but in light of the fact that, you know, we're not talking about climate change enough, why don't you see these things? Why, why, why do they, why are you inspired by them as, as opposed to seeing them as, as other urgent issues that are pushing climate behind, whether it's, you know, in the national conversation on airtime on TV or also just on the left, you know, as far as priorities. And so why, why aren't you, why aren't these distractions for in the climate fight? Yeah, I, I don't think that the struggle for justice in any form is a distraction. I think that's what the climate movement is about. I think that um, if you have uh, a more just world, then climate change is not a problem anymore. I can't conceive of a world that is fair and just that would continue to uh, have a fossil fueled economy. It just... It, that's my, <laughs> this is my goal. Um, in the end, you know, sort of in the year 2050 in the world, in the universe that this book inhabits, we will look back on the last 30 years and wonder how it ever happened in the first place. Like, because it, it, if you build a society and a global civilization where, um, not caring for each other, um, is, is sort of is unthinkable climate change can't exist in that world. Um, and and I think that we would put ourselves on better footing for, you know, other emerging justice issues that might happen over the next hundred years or so. Um, we, we could, we can set ourselves up by, um, by solving, um, the climate emergency with a justice focused approach, we can, we can prevent other injustices from happening in the future because we are going to have a future after climate change. Like the world is not going to end, um, you know, when the world reaches a certain, uh, degree Celsius threshold. Um, we will still be dealing with things like, you know, AI and the colonization of the solar system. And like, if you're a future optimist, like (laughs) those things will potentially happen over the next 200 years. Um, We need to figure out a way for, um, for having conversations. Um, Yeah. It was like, all of this is happening while there's a billionaire that is planning to single-handedly colonize Mars. Like, should that happen? (laughs) I don't know. Like probably not. You know, like I one one other thing that happened while I was writing this book is I went to uh um uh a one day conference uh um at the Library of Congress um that uh the title of the conference was uh decolonizing Mars. And you know, there were Afrofuturists, there were um planetary scientists there were people that built 
uh, Mars missions. There were all kinds of people there, journalists, artists, um, talking about is what is what does this mean in if you take the last 500 years of human history and put Mars colonization in that uh, and you have the hindsight of knowing what happened, probably um, it's not necessary. Like we like, you know, Mars has rights. And if there are living things in the, elsewhere in the solar system, they, they have rights too. Um, also the act of spending money uh, on Mars missions when we have, uh, you know, a pandemic and a global economic catastrophe and climate change is not really, you know, a, a, a just decision. Um, the, uh, you know, like our, our work on climate um, w- with, with a multi-century perspective, our work on climate informs these sort of future justice issues um, as well, you know. Um, yeah. the book again is the future earth a radical vision for what's possible in the age of warming its author is eric holthouse it's out on june 30th so grow grab your copy now eric thank you so much for your time today and for this book yeah thank you so much for having me